Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about China. As the People's Republic starts its 19th Party Congress, what does it tell us about the future direction of the world's most populous country? What does it tell us about Xi Jinping, who is being crowned for the second time and is now seeing his own version of thought being recognised by the party? And what does it mean for international politics and for the European Union? To help me make sense of all of these questions and many more, I'm very pleased to be joined from Paris by two great students of Chinese politics, the head of our China and Asia programme, François Godemont, and uh, Jérôme Doyon, who works on China analysis and is a uh, keen student of the Communist Party and uh, its internal developments. François, why don't you go first and tell us why this party congress matters and what we know about it so far? Well, we know very little. First of all, you really know about a party congress when it ends, because that's when the names are given, and that's what everybody is waiting for, for the horse races results. Second, party congresses are kind of internal mass. They're about confirming ideology, talking to party members. They're not really about talking to the rest of the world. Uh, on top of that, concrete policies uh, are often announced at, it's a bit of a jargon, but at central committee meetings outside of the party congress. So we have to make with what we see. And what we see is sitting things second self-coronation. We had the first one five years ago. This one is even more pronounced. The guy speaks in the first name. The guy hardly mentions his predecessors, although he walked in flanked by two of them. Uh, the man claims now to have invented uh, a new Chinese socialism, uh, which people speculate might become Xi Jinping's thought. On record today, we have the first provincial party secretary uh, who is using the word helmsman about Xi Jinping. You know who was the great helmsman? It was Mao. So I cannot help but converge with everybody who has watched the tape of a three hours plus speech, uh, which is it is a confirmation of Xi Jinping's absolute hold on the party. So, Jérôme, what changes is he doing to the party? I mean, we've seen uh, various different styles of leadership. We, uh, everyone knows about Mao's peculiar style. Deng Xiaoping had a different approach. And then we went, moved more to a stage of collective leadership. Um, what do we know about uh, the agenda for, for reforming the party? I think what we've seen with, I mean, this new speech by Xi Jinping, but I mean, that's basically an articulation of a system which has been developed in the last few years. And I mean, this system is made of three key elements, right? So it's first reinforcing the party itself. So the strong grip the party has on society, but also on the state itself. And that's kind of going against the tendencies since the, the 80s to kind of separate what the party is supposed to do and the state is supposed to do. So that's kind of the, the key elements of, of Xi Jinping's rule. The second one is also uh, giving a certain importance to a degree of rule by law, actually. So he's legislating on a lot of different things. So with new laws regarding uh, non-government organizations, 
with, uh, in a way, bringing the old anti-corruption mechanisms under the realm of law rather than purely internal party affairs. So I think this is also a new uh, way of dealing with things. But um, I mean, I say rule by law and not rule of law because that's that's important in the sense that we have clear rules, but it does not mean that the law and the party are separated. There was actually a text in 2014 about this, and it was quite interesting in showing that the party's officials should not, basically saying, oh, you should try to prevent yourself from intervening in the legislative process, but never saying that the party was not above the law, basically, or that the law was above the party. And uh, and actually, the text was also saying that the officials should be better trained in law in order to intervene more efficient, efficiently, basically. And the third element would be a stronger control over society compared to his uh, predecessors, and especially through the use of new technologies, basically. That's why a lot of people are now talking about uh, big data dictatorship or digital Leninism and so on. And um, so I think this, in uh, the speech from the other day, this was made very clear. It basically articulated these different elements and tried to frame this in the idea that that's what we need for a new era. I mean, that's basically the, the big message from this speech. I mean, from my perspective, at least, is that we are now in a new era. You had the revolutionary era with Mao, the reform era with Deng Xiaoping, and now we have the era of socialist modernization, maybe with Xi Jinping. So, Francois, it is very striking how a lot of the things that people thought would lead to a more liberal China seem to be used to strengthen the strongman rule under Xi Jinping. So the rule of law is one thing where he is ruling by law in a very effective way, anti-corruption, the internet. These are all things that were uh, designed, which most people thought would liberalize China rather than strengthen the, the leadership of the Communist Party. I think very few people anticipated that he would have a system of checks without balance. Xi Jinping leads the party, the party leads China. He said in his speech, the party leads everything. The speech lasted 205 minutes. He cited the party 331 times. That's one and a half times per minute, if I calculate, perhaps even more. Uh, so we really have something that's very strong. And I think that the overall impression that Xi Jinping wanted to give was clearly strength. It's replicated in every domain. When you look, for example, at the outside world, what he said is China's army will be the world's first army by 2049. That's still 30, 32 years away, but it's not so far away. And he also said the Chinese, the Chinese people, will be above other people of the world. He didn't mean he would rule, that the Chinese would rule the others, but that they would have a better uh, way of life, a better living by 2035. That is all an unprecedented assertion of strength. You have to come back to Mao's speech at the start of the Greek League, you know, when he said uh, China's steel production will surpass Great Britain's. Uh, at the time, it seemed impossible. Now it would make everybody laugh. But this is a complete change from his predecessors, who one way or another were still hinting at some kind of political reform, who were playing with concepts like democracy, Chinese style, and who let us believe that there could be uh, a drift towards liberalization. He is leaving absolutely no space for that, and, and that, I think, is the most striking feature. 
So what does this political change mean for the future of China's economic model? People have been talking for a long time about the next phase of Chinese development, the new normal where it's not growing at double digits anymore. How does this political platform engage with the future of the Chinese economy? First of all, he didn't talk that much during those three plus hours about economic policy. He talked a lot about development, which is, you know, another concept, perhaps more traditional. Second, in the past, he had seen more liberal himself uh, during the first uh, party, I mean, uh, the, the 18th Party Congress, the first Party Congress where he became general secretary, he had talked about the market quite extensively. There was ambiguity because he was also saying that state enterprises were important, but you could, you know, you could take your pick. This time, the balance is clearly towards the guiding hand of the state in the economy and towards state enterprises. He just has those few minutes where he gives some hope foreign investors. He said, we will have a more equal opportunity to invest in China. Uh, there will be some opening for private firms. But really, it's just a tiny fraction of the speech. He's a pragmatic, however, and so that doesn't mean that he couldn't, in the next six months, suddenly decide on some round of economic reform. This is the area where, you know, his ultimate power will, cre will clearly depend on success of the economy. But I note, for example, that he has not mentioned the liberalization uh, of the currency regime, which was mentioned at previous party congress, which the central bank governor, who's going to retire certainly this time, mentioned in a speech only two weeks ago. So on balance, I would say he's less reformist than what he himself was only three or four years ago. And if I may add on this point, also when, I mean, they took, he talks about reform from time to time, and it's true he used to talk a bit more about it two or three years ago. But also we tend to always think that reform means you know, market-oriented reform, basically, whereas we have seen in the past years that when it comes to state-owned enterprises, especially, it does not mean liberalization. It means often, actually what he said on the speech, uh, in his speech, stronger, bigger uh, SOEs, often through mergers of uh, different SOEs. So it actually goes often the other way around. So, Jérôme, you use this phrase, uh, a big data dictatorship. Um, I'd be interested to hear from the two of you how you see the internet, which has been a massive source of Chinese growth and has led to a kind of big revolution in economic matters, and has also kind of changed some of the ideas of party management, how the internet is, is, is changing China. So on, on this issue, I mean, it's, it's mainly a tool, so I think we should not overstate how it's going to change everything. But it's true that it facilitates to a certain extent the party's control over its own members and on over society. So for instance, now you have a, a lot of new apps for party members in order to facilitate communication among themselves, in order to facilitate them their access to a number of documents and so on. Also to facilitate what they call party life, so basically organizing uh, activities and so on. So that's, that's part of these tools they can use. Also, the, a new trend, which is now being tested in, in some cities, is what they call a social credit system. So it's basically uh, evaluating people uh, based on the number of, uh, of social uh, 
actions and, and basically the rating you get out of this system will then influence uh, which, I mean, your job, your, your access to credit, your access to education for your kid, a number of things like this. So this is actually a kind of replica of a system which already exists, the Dong'an system, in which basically everybody is supposed to have a personal file in which you have grades and, uh, I mean, mostly things written about how you were in school, how you were in the university, uh, also according to your different boss. And, and then this is passed along from one organization to the other, one firm to the other, uh, when you evolve in life. And that's basically with the internet and this new system, it basically facilitates uh, all these control mechanisms which to a certain extent already existed. I would amplify that even... Uh on the economy. I think there is a dream among top party leaders and perhaps economic bureaucrats uh, to use something that's called systems analysis. Systems analysis means thanks to computers, thanks to big data, you can understand all the relationships within a very complex system in real time. That's what computers make possible. And the dream is China today is that you can beat the free market through central planning because central planning now has tools that it never had. When Mao was trying to do some planning, maybe a few dozens of products were really controlled from the center. In the Soviet Union, it went up to 1,500, not more. Today, the dream in China is you can control these companies real-time, you can control the exchanges real-time, and this runs completely against the mantra of economic liberalization. And the big bosses of the so-called private internet company, uh, IT company, which are really hybrid companies, people like Jack Ma, Alibaba, and so on, are sort of edging on uh, the leaders on that dream because it makes them indispensable, and also because in this way they ingratiate themselves with the party. So we have an ambition that's, you know, it goes beyond the George Orwell idea that you control individuals and their minds or you control what people do or think. Uh, it extends to all aspects of real life and it's unprecedented in its ambition. So can you talk a bit more about some of the ways that they are trying to use central planning in practice? In practice, it means that you can control the accounting of companies, that you can control the price relationships. You know, central planning was really invented from what today we would call Nextel table. Uh, it was Simon Kuznets, who was in the Soviet Union in, in the Bolshevik era, and then he migrated to the US and he got a Nobel Prize for his input-output tables, but he started like that. And the idea is that you can control almost all businesses in this way, and in real time, with transmission of data, just as through the social credit that uh, Jérôme was mentioning, you can track an individual. When is he leaving home? When is he taking a cab? When is he opening his phone? What kind of internet websites does he visit? What marks did he get in school today? Uh, what's his uh, relationship with the party? Does he criticize the party sometimes online? This is the equivalent for the economy. Okay, so um, there's an important technological element to this. Can we talk a bit about the foreign policy um, side? François, you mentioned the, the idea of having the, the most powerful uh, army or navy in the world by 2049. Um, what else can we glean about Xi Jinping's ambitions on the world stage? Uh, one claim to multilateralism and to uh, you know, being a contributor to the world order comes in the area of climate change and the environment. 
And it's clear that Xi Jinping and China want to use the lead that they currently have in developing alternative energy. They also probably want to use the void that Donald Trump has left uh, with his change of policy in the U.S. to appear as leaders. And this is, of course, also very profitable for China since it could be a lead exporter of some of these processes, some of these products. So this is what I would call the one progressive aspect in Xi Jinping's speech. He did mention, of course, One Belt, One Road, uh, and he said it was the project of the century, but he didn't really... You mean uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, I think it's now called, the, which is the massive new Silk Road, which is meant to link up 65 countries and 2.5 trillion uh, dollars worth of, of economic activity. In theory, yes, but they also call it an initiative to explain that it's not a grand plan, that it can be flexible, and really it's a mismatch of initiatives to various countries, but all based on the notion that, A, China has a lot of cash to invest, B, China also has a lot to sell, and C, uh, through this, it can get favors in political terms. So did we learn anything new about the Belt and the Road Initiative? In my view, strictly nothing. He just mentioned it. And in fact, people who expected that he would go big again on the China dream, uh, that he would go big again on the, on the uh, Belt and Road Initiative and would make it the centerpiece of his party speech, of his Congress speech, were wrong. He just cites it. Yes, but still it's, I think, uh, an important part of this image of a new era he wants to, to promote, right? The, the idea that we're not in the pragmatic China era of Deng Xiaoping anymore and, and that now we, I mean, the narrative is that we are not, you know, crossing the river by filling the stones anymore, but we, we are having big plans, a kind of a grand strategy for the future. So this idea, so he developed this idea that now we have a development in two stages, basically achieving basic, what they call basic socialist modernization by 2035, and then becoming a great global power by 2050. So we far beyond the moderately well-off society, which was supposedly the goal of the reform era. And obviously the BRI is just one of these plans or narratives. Uh, obviously it's only partly true because when we look at what's actually happening, China is still very pragmatic on the world stage. And, and I'm not sure the BRI can be seen as a, an overall strategy, but rather bringing a lot of different projects together with an overall uh, umbrella, uh, but still this this willingness to promote that such a narrative and also the idea that this new era, this new model for a new era is also exportable and that it can be implemented in other countries, which I think is also an important part of the speech. So what what's, uh, if you think about the next uh, few decades then, what's going to happen between now and 2035 and then what's going to happen in 2050? Can you unpack that a bit more? Uh, so this is obviously really, I mean, we don't know yet, but the idea is that basically by 2039, China uh, supposedly finished uh, completely the, the reform it has started in the past uh, few years, including the BRI and so on, in order, in order to become a really modern and global power. And then by 2050, this is even less clear, I guess, but it will be basically realizing the Chinese dream, in a sense, this this idea. And uh, I mean, that's what Francois said at the beginning, that basically you'll have the strongest military in the world, or obviously the strongest economy, and, and so on. 
I agree. He, he, it's not that China is going somewhere. It's that China has arrived. China is not back on the world stage. China is from now at the center of the world stage. That's how he positions the country. And there are no apologies to make, nor are there for Chinese socialism, uh, all sorts of negative ideologies or dissonant ideologies will be fought, but he said it very, very strongly, but very calmly. No hysteria there, just absolute resolution. And I think that gives us an inkling of the, the, of the next decade. The other question, Mark, would be, does Xi Jinping think that he himself will be part of those next decades, or will he end uh, his role in five years as, in theory, the state constitution and party custom would dictate from today's speech, uh, I would guess no. Uh, I would guess that this is clearly a role that he foresees continuing uh, beyond 2022. But then we don't know what will happen in terms of nominations uh, in a few days. Uh, and of course, we don't know whether these programs will go on. I would just like to note that he was surrounded by his two immediate predecessors, Chiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. Chiang Zemin, Yaon, of course he's 91, so there are several reasons why he might yawn during a long speech. But he visibly yawned through the entire speech. And, and Hu Jintao, at the end of Xi Jinping's very long speech, showed him his watch. There is no way in Chinese to describe this as a very polite gesture. It's kind of where signaling, you know, you've been a bit long. And in this hyper-controlled atmosphere, with every delegate looking in the air in front of him, uh, and all the TVs turned on, I thought those two gestures were quite incredible from his immediate predecessors. And what do we think is going to happen in terms of the longevity of these things? Because we all know that Xi Jinping is traumatized by the Soviet experience and by what happened to Gorbachev and a lot of his decision making is driven by a desire not to be a Chinese Gorbachev. But at the same time, through a lot of the actions that you've described so far, he has taken some quite big risks um, and attacked some of the kind of basis of the legitimacy of the Communist Party. The anti-corruption campaign both removes one of the things which has been a, a, an important glue for the elite in China, the ability to share around the proceeds of, of corruption, but also by going after um, other centres of power, he's created quite a lot of uh, people who have an interest in him falling and uh, who have resentments towards him. I mean, how, how, how he, you know, he does look like the master of all that he surveys today, but is he actually uh, creating a situation where he might find his, his grip on power becomes brittle over time by um, uh, destroying some of the things that, that kept the Communist Party uh, in a position where it was reasonably legitimate and reasonably powerful over the last few decades? I mean, there, there are always different ways to see, to see these different things, right? Because, I mean, highly depend how you interpret them. If, for instance, the anti-corruption campaign or the fact that he builds a lot of new institutions that basically concentrate power in his own hands and in the party hands rather than the state department. I mean, it obviously shows that he can do it, so he has a certain amount of power, but it also means that he has a lot of enemy that he has to purge and that maybe he doesn't control the 
regular institutions that well, so he needs these new institutions, right? So, I mean, either you can see it as a sign of weakness or a sign of, um, of strength. Uh, I mean, now the new, uh, I mean, mainstream, I would say, is to see it, I mean, maybe it was not the case a few years ago, but now it is, to see it as a sign of strength, and that's probably true to a certain extent. But at the same time, I mean, he changes a number of rules, and I mean, we'll see in a few days if he changes rules regarding uh, the promotion of a successor, uh, which uh, would, I mean, basically, if he does not promote a potential successor in the standing committee this time, it could mean that either he wants to stay longer or he wants to change the way the successors are selected and maybe uh, select one letter among a bigger pool than just two people uh, within the Politburo. So, I mean, this, again, we, we don't know yet. But I think what's interesting is that in general, I mean, we've seen this with the successors, but also more broadly, I mean, the party is becoming tighter, and especially for, let's say, the young, ambitious officials. For them, it's harder to get promoted. It's harder to rise in the hierarchy. And, I mean, the, so the idea of the promoting successors or not for him, but also for his cronies at the provincial level goes with that. And probably on the midterm, uh, it's it's a good strategy to the extent that he, it, it's easier for him to, you know, maintain his grip on power and maintain, maintain his followers at key positions. So in that case, I mean, that's very different from Gorbachev. But at the same time, it also means on the long term that when someone will actually come and replace him, that would be harder for this new person, basically. And, I mean, that's when the Gorbachev story comes in, right? Uh, so basically, this he, because he, he will have a successor at a certain point, and so when this person com comes up and is surrounded by C's cronies we are, who are already pretty old and everything, if he wants to get power, he has to change everything, and, I mean, that's when it becomes dangerous. So probably his strategy is safe on the for now, but it's maybe a problem for, in terms of uh, the long-term strategy of the party itself. Do you agree with that, Francois? I guess, yes. I would complement it by saying it's very difficult to identify who are the discontents in China. The celebrated middle class, for example, it's got a rise of income this year that's higher than at any other time. Few observers note that, that for the Congress year, uh, income salaries have risen a lot, particularly in big cities. If you look at the party itself, of course, he's purged 700,000 cadres of corruption thousands of army officers. So how would there not be grumbling? The guy who in 2012 was informally designated to probably run the party in 2022, that was Sun Tsai, who was the, 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 the party secretary uh, for Chongqing until a few uh, months ago, he's just been purged for being pervert degenerate. So clearly there are going to be oppositions, but I would say the opposition it doesn't have the possibility to form factions. If it's experts, intellectuals, they all feel a return to Maoism. This is their main fear, and they are totally distraught by his more than authoritarian style. If it's the party, they fear his hands. Uh, they fear they are all absolutely hapless in front of his power. But I think that unlike five or ten years ago, I don't clearly see, we don't clearly see, factions forming. So, you know, he has the problem of every dictator that uh, if things go wrong, the opposition could suddenly surge. But right now we can't see it. If it exists, it's under the stones. So 
What does all this mean for, for Europe when we kind of think about how we handle uh, China? I mean, that, you know, I think it'd be interesting maybe to unpack some of the different dimensions. There's this question about what we do on the world stage. Francois mentioned the idea of multilateralism and climate change. Other people think about whether we can work with China to, to save um, the WTO and the global trade regime from, from uh, Trump's protectionist instincts. Um, but then there's also this question about what China's foreign policy means as it becomes more of a player in Europe through the Belt and the Road initiative, where it's investing in lots of different European countries and offering to link them up. Um, and then I suppose there are the question about China on all the other dossiers that we're worried about, from the Iran nuclear deal to uh, what we do uh, in uh, other areas where the United Nations is active and where China has, has a veto. What, what should we take from this? François, do you want to have a first bash at that? Well, it's a very big agenda you're pointing to. So if I, if I start from Europe, let's be frank, the Belt and Road doesn't really reach into Europe. Yes, they offered to buy ports, and they did buy a few. Yes, they have a few offers to uh, the Eastern European countries, but these offers usually don't really materialize when the countries are inside the EU. So this is not the most significant thing. What is much more significant is that China could hope to bypass Europe in third countries. That is to become more influential than we could ever dream to be. That's true from the Middle East to Central Asia and perhaps also to Africa. So this is a big competition. The second notion that we should uh, think about is that it's going to be very hard to deal in trade investment terms with a very strong China that is clearly taking no prisoners, that is not about to make concessions, that thinks that time is on its side, and that may even think that the European way of doing things is the one that is outdated. Uh, currently, if I look at stuff like investment rules, for example, they're going to the UN, to a UN-European committee that has far more countries than the European member states, to sort of circumvent uh, some European rules and try to impress these on Europe. There's going to be a very tough job uh, you know, just standing up and maintaining our own rules. Third, there are indeed possible areas of cooperation. Climate and environment would be one. But to me, there is a big restriction to that, which is for China, it's about selling made-in-China equipment. They don't really need our advice on how to make uh, clean cities uh, because they know how to make them. They're actually making a lot in second-tier cities that we don't really know of. They occasionally use our expertise, but they hardly use our equipment, our processes. So I think the world is going to be very different, Mark, uh, in a few years uh, with a very strong China that's going upscale in areas where we were confident that we had leadership and we will absolutely have to bank on rules and on partners uh, preferring European rules to Chinese, perhaps non-rules, in order to prevail. Okay, well that, that's maybe a good place to end this discussion because uh, there's a danger, obviously, if we're not careful, that we could go on as long as Xi Jinping did in his speech. Um, but we do have one more thing to do on this podcast, which is our, our bookshelf segment. Um, Jérôme, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? What are you reading? Oh, right now I'm reading... Um Actually, a book called The Souls of China by Yan Johnson, journalist, uh, actually on the basically religious revival 
uh, in China at the moment, and it's uh, it's really interesting, especially for people like like me, maybe like us, who tend to you know, obsess about the the party side of the issue, the control side of the issue. And here we see, I mean, through a lot of in different individual stories, actually how, I mean, basically a lot of things are going on outside of the party, and uh, and sometimes it involves party local party officials and so on. But uh, but really, this idea that from Taoism to Buddhism to Christianism, even Islam, all these are really mushrooming in, in China, being really uh, increasingly developed, basically, and uh, with a lot of mix from one religion to another. And that's, I mean, this is a very interesting story to read, basically. Fascinating. What, what's on your bookshelf, Francois? Uh, Mark, I have to admit I'm on vacation this week. I'm not reading about China. I'm reading a fantastic, how do you call it, docu-novel? Is that the right word? By Jean-Paul Kaufman, he's a, the French journalist who was kidnapped in Lebanon back a decade ago, was hostage to uh, Hezbollah for some time. And it's a book called Outre Terre, Beyond Earth, and it's totally European story. It's about Kaliningrad, which used to be Königsberg, where Napoleon either won or lost, depending on what one believes, the battle with the Russians. And it's a fantastic uh, story through the layers of European history. And also that will bring back, bring us back to this topic uh, about a strong man who believed that through strength and through uh, a, a centralized model, he could literally bring uh, all the countries surrounding him under his yoke. Okay, and I'm going to um, do a bit of log rolling for our Asia program um, for people who are interested in going further uh, on these topics. Um, we have just published a collection of, um, of short pieces on the question of whether China has a grand strategy in our um, called Grand Designs. And uh, also, for those of us, you who are interested in the North Korea crisis, which we sh should probably have spoken about a bit more, but which we have to come back to in a, in a future podcast, there's a, a great commentary by uh, a colleague of... Uh, François and, and Jérôme, Mathieu Duchatel, um, talking about uh, what prospects there are for the European Union to, to host uh, US-China contingency talks on, 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 the, on the nuclear crisis. But that's all we've got time for now. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, you have a duty and an obligation to let everybody that you know um, know all about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on Facebook, but above all, leaving us a review on our iTunes page. And we still have a very small number of highly coveted end of the world ECFR podcast mugs, which say the end is near, but the coffee is hot with a beautiful ECFR logo and the end of the world image on it, um, which will make you uh, the envy of your social circles. Uh, and we will send a uh, mug to the most exciting review that you send to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Francois Godman, Jérôme Doyon, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Pauline Goemin.